Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. It's Dr. Zubin Damania. Welcome to the ZDog MD show. All right. So I have a guest today, Dr. David Persing. He is the chief medical and chief technology officer for Cepheid. Now, you may have heard of Cepheid recently because of COVID. They are one of the top makers of one of the most used tests for COVID-19 in the SARS-CoV-2 virus that exists right now. And full disclosure, I've worked with them before in a sponsored capacity, they've supported our show, but they're back now because we care deeply about what they're doing and we have questions about testing and what's coming this fall when a big wave of flu, RSV, and COVID is coming. Uh, Dave, welcome back to the show, man. Thanks, C. Great to see you again. So what did I get wrong in that intro? Did I miss anything? No, it was perfect. Yeah. The one thing I didn't mention is that you were a master winemaker. Uh, <laughs> not a winemaker so much as a wine grower. Yeah. Ah. So I have vines on the property and we'll, uh, we'll take some time later on to actually sample some of my... Uh, my stuff. That, that, that is uh, an illegal inducement of a physician, Dave. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. So here's the thing. So when we spoke before uh, on our show, we were talking about molecular diagnostics and we were talking about flu and TB and different things you guys have done at Cepheid. Now you're a pioneer in this because ever since being at UCSF, you're an MD, PhD, you've sort of worked on this sort of molecular diagnostic angle. Now we have COVID-19 and you guys are all in the news because you make one of the major tests. Can you just fill us in, fill the audience in on how that test works and how you guys spun that up quickly? Sure. Yeah, uh, it was really made possible by the fact that we had already had a, um, a flu test that we had developed. And so it was the same swab used for patient sampling, same transport medium, same internal workings for the cartridge, same fluidics same extraction protocol to get the RNA out of the virus and detect it with PCR. So it was a pretty easy swap for us to basically take out the flu-specific reagents and put in COVID-specific reagents to make a new COVID test. Uh, and that enabled us to, to turn around very quickly a new test that could detect uh, COVID very sensitively for us, it was really important because we were designing our test for sick people, mm. uh, which is the way we designed our flu test. And um, the uh, importance of that is that when you, when you have patients coming into the hospital um, and they're sick, they could have any number of viruses, but if they have COVID, you really don't want to have a false negative. You mm. don't want to be in the ER without PPE on, put them into a, into a hospital room without appropriate levels of isolation uh, and PPE use for the staff, uh, and then find out later that they're actually COVID positive. Yeah, so that's a disaster, right? Yeah. So what you're talking about is sensitivity, which for the yeah. audience means a low number of false negatives. You're catching as many cases as you can. Absolutely, yeah. So we felt we had to really push 
for the highest sensitivity possible. And that leads to what we call a high negative predictive value, which means you can have great confidence in a negative result because the test is so sensitive. So uh, that's what we did. And uh, we have a test that uh, targets two different parts of the virus. Uh, that's important because the virus can drift, mm. uh, can change, the genetics can drift, and you can lose, potentially lose one or one target in the assay, and you'd lose the ability to uh, detect it if you, if you had only one target in the assay. But we have two, and that makes it possible to avoid the effects of genetic drift. Have you guys noticed drift happening within the targets that you've chosen? In other words, the changing targets? It has happened. Um, already, and some of the tests out there have been affected by that drift, mm -hmm. but we designed it so it wouldn't be affected by that drift. So you have this double safety of having two targets. Yeah. And when you're testing here, you're testing for the RNA directly from viral particles. Yep. So tell me about, you talked about sensitivity. So in other words, the test picks up everything that we hope is positive, but what happens when you pick up a negative, but you falsely call it a positive? That's a problem too. Um, it's actually um, happening, it's in the news, we're hearing about false positives here and there. Um, that creates a lot of um, anxiety, right? Obviously for the person who's detected as positive, there's panic, there's um, you know a call for isolation, there's all kinds of actions that happen after that. And there's contact tracing, which can be very uh, invasive. Laborious. Yeah. And so the bottom line is that you want to avoid <laughs> both false positives and false negatives if you possibly can. So that's what that's what our technology is good at. It's really good at at uh, at getting uh, good sensitivity, uh, but also avoiding false positives because it's in a discrete cartridge that's run. Uh, one at a time on a per patient basis. It's not running big batches, which can get contaminated during processing. So uh, we avoid uh, many of the problems associated with batch processing of specimens. Got it. And these cartridges are similar to what you were using with flu when we talked about your flu product. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. the idea is, again, since it's not thrown in a big batch, there's less chance of contamination. But one question I had is, so, you were able to spin this up quickly because it was a transition from technology you had. Yeah. So you got an emergency use authorization from FDA. That's correct. And then you were the first non-governmental entity, right, in the US that was providing tests. The, the first rapid test, yes. We, we, we were the first provider of a test that provided results in less than an hour. Less than an hour. Yeah. So now why are, what's going on now, Dave, where people are saying it's taking a week, 10 days to get results? You know, it really comes down to logistics uh, for batch testing. Uh, it comes down to the fact that these big systems have to be in a, in a central lab, in a reference lab. So all the samples have to come to them. Okay, so you collect the specimens often in batches in a parking lot. You don't send specimens one at a time, you send them in batches. So you gotta wait till the batch of specimens is ready. Then you transport those. Um, that takes time. Then when they, get to, when they get to the lab, they have to be batch processed. Depending on the level of testing that they're doing, there could be a backlog in, in processing in batches. And so what we're seeing right now is combination, I think mostly of backlogs in samples sitting in the lab waiting to be processed. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's leading to prolonged turnaround time. Well, so two questions, <clears throat> and one is, 
Is this happening with your system because yours is a cartridge system that isn't bashed? Well, it's not really happening with our system because our systems are not located as often in central reference laboratories. They're located within the hospital itself. So directly at the point of care. Yeah, directly yeah. within the hospital, directly at the point of care. So the logistics are easier because the patient's right there and the machine's over there and you just walk it over to the machine um, uh, or it's in the hospital lab where it gets transported from the emergency department or the ICU or wherever down to the stat lab and the results get back pretty quickly. Yeah, and I've seen your machines in the labs at uh, like say UMC Hospital where I, where I work and mm -hmm. uh, so it's all right there and you can do this in clinic too in smaller facilities with smaller machines, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we th there are many systems out there for, for point of care testing, for near patient testing. There are some restrictions in terms of how you run the test. You have to be in PPE mm. uh, to be able to run the test because the sample that you just collected while you were wearing PPE is still infectious. So uh -huh. you need to process it carefully. And there are guidelines for how to do that at the point of care. So it's not as convenient as the old days where you could just you know collect a swab from a patient with for flu testing uh, and walk it over to a machine. Put it concerned your, about PPE. Put it in your teeth yeah, and just yeah, like kind of yeah. walk it up, right? Yeah. And then you throw yeah. it in the machine, right? Yeah, so those that's changed. Uh, but I think uh, it's still possible to do it on a much more decentralized basis now. So uh, the follow-up question to that is the bulk testing that you mentioned where it's sitting in a lab waiting, can those samples degrade over time giving us false positive or false negative? That's, that's one of the concerns is that uh, the, the stability of the sample in the transport medium might be a factor. So uh, there could be an advantage to running them quickly. Yeah. Uh, and so we do think that could be playing into some of the some of the false negatives that are being seen out there. Yeah, and false negatives, you know, the conspiracy theorists keep talking about false positives and we're <laughs> overcalling everything, yeah. but then you look at excess death rate in the country and it's yeah. through the roof. Yeah. So we don't think that's what it is, although it's a good question to ask, right? Yeah. You know? Because yeah. if hospitals are incentivized to call everything COVID, then yeah. there's a financial incentive, yeah. but but it isn't. But so now you, when we're talking about the false negatives though, because I'm seeing this happen, people with florid COVID symptoms, fevers, body aches, yeah. feeling like they're hit by a truck in the middle of the summer, coming back negative 10 days later when the test is finally coming back. Right. Yeah. I mean, there no test is perfect, right? I think the um, one of the major uh, challenges is that COVID can present at various stages. It can present with an, er, with an early presentation of upper respiratory symptoms and feverous body aches, very much flu-like. But it can also present with lower respiratory uh, symptoms, pneumonia-like symptoms after some incubation period the viral infection actually uh, transits from the upper respiratory tract to the lower respiratory tract. Mm. So it's possible to actually, even using a very sensitive test, it's possible to actually miss a case by sampling the upper respiratory tract because all the action is down south in the lower tract. And so there are cases where, um, where patients have been missed because the infection is no longer as prevalent within the upper respiratory tract. That, th that's really interesting because nobody's really, not a lot of people are talking about that. Right. You know? and, and early on we were talking about GI effects as well and should we be testing stool or doing something yeah, like that? Right. Yeah, interesting. So, so, so just real quick before I forget, and then you can follow up what you were just thinking. This is a, your test is a nasopharyngeal swab or just a nares swab? It's, uh, it's both, nasopharyngeal mm -hmm. swab and nares, um, uh, nasal swabs and uh, 
both are usable in the system. Right. And that's partly because it's so sensitive. It does, even though the nasal viral loads are lower mm. than the nasopharyngeal viral loads, um, that we still get good performance with nasal swabs. Um, I see. So the, these um, uh, testing situations where they're having people self-swab their nares, mm -hmm. you think that's sufficient using your technology? I think so. It, as long as the underlying technology is sensitive enough, it should be able to accommodate um, less invasive specimens. Mm. Uh, there are some protocols focusing on saliva now. Um, saliva in general, depending on how it's collected, whether you hakalugi or not, uh, and getting it uh, may vary in viral load, but in general, just straight saliva doesn't have as much virus in it as either nasal or nasopharyngeal swabs. So, yeah. So there again, a super sensitive technology can still detect it, but uh, it gets harder and harder the further away you get from the nasopharyngeal space where the virus is replicating at maximal levels. Got it. Now, relating to that, a couple things. The first is. Um this idea that people are retesting positive weeks and months later. Yeah. What's your thought on that? Is that real? Is that an artifact of the sensitivity of the test? What's going on? That's one of the big uh, puzzles right now is what's the meaning of a persistent positive RNA result? Um, is it just an RNA fragment? Uh, is it actively replicating virus? Um, and the answer is we don't fully know yet. Mm. Uh, but we suspect that after several days of infection, after several days of RNA positivity during the peak uh, of infection in the, in the days following, you develop an immune response. Mm. And, that, and that simultaneously with the development of the immune response, you lose infectivity even if there's virus still present. Uh -huh. And so uh, the studies are showing that, uh, that use culture to actually check for infectivity of virus, uh, that, um, that between seven and 10 days after the onset of symptoms, uh, the virus loses infectivity, even though you can still detect it uh, in, in the sample. Mm. Um, so, you know, what's the, what's the best use of a really sensitive test? It's really for the primary diagnosis. It's not really for monitoring infection because we mm. don't know what the meaning is of a test that's run 10 days after the onset of infection relative to what's important, which is, is the patient infectious or not? Right. And, and, and relating to that, that's, that's a great explanation because people have been freaking out about this, right? Like, yeah. oh my God, it never goes away. We're con con yeah. getting reinfected all the time. And I'm like, I don't think that means what you think it means. Right. At least we don't know yet. Right. And re relating to that are those antigen tests that Michael Mina from Harvard and others are proposing, right. the saliva. And you mentioned saliva has a lower concentration of virus. Right. Well, what are your thoughts on that? He's saying, well, for a dollar a day, you can do an antigen test, probably similar to the flu antigen test, rapid flu. Right. And <clears throat> people can do it at home and it can, yeah. you know, what's your thought? My, my, th my feeling is that technology will play a role because um, when uh, infected people, infected patients uh, become infected, they start off at low levels and may develop very high levels. Uh, some may not develop high levels, but it's quite likely that the ones who develop the highest levels of virus are the most infectious early on during the course of infection. And the antigen tests will probably be capable of detecting those so-called super spreaders, mm. the, the folks who really are infectious early on. They won't detect it 
immediately after infection. It'll take a couple of days for the viral antigens to build up to, build up to the point of being detected. Uh, and they won't detect it long after infection is, is uh, past its, uh, its primary phase. But uh, they may be able to detect it during that window of maximal infectivity. And as a result of that, it seems like that strategy should work for asymptomatic testing. Um, and the key is going to be doing it often enough so that you don't miss the window, mm. right? Mm. You want to catch it when it's at the peak of, of, uh, of uh, infectivity. And that makes sense for everything you said, which is um, just a little bit beyond that peak, you're not gonna pick it up on the test. And right. you care about the peak because that's when you're actually gonna spread it to other people. So that's when you wanna be home and maybe yep. go get the gold standard test yep. to confirm. Yep. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense. Now you actually mentioned early on uh, <clears throat> that this test that you have is was really designed for sick people yeah. in, who are who are presenting. Now this becomes the formative question for the fall when right. hospitals yeah. are going to be overwhelmed potentially by a combination of flu, this, uh, COVID, RSV, which people stop talking about. Yeah, which is a huge. I mean, how how does RSV affect the whole mix? By the way, because no one talks about respiratory syncytial virus. I know. Actually, RSV is, uh, is very important, especially for uh, the very young and very old. Mm. Uh, so RSV is well-documented to cause uh, flu-like symptoms, even sepsis-like presentations, severe outcomes, high mortality. So how many deaths? So about 177,000 hospitalizations per year. Uh, mostly in the elderly, often in nursing home settings, and about 14,000 deaths per year. So it's a pretty significant contributor to overall mortality, morbidity mortality, among respiratory infections, especially among the elderly. So in the elderly, you're gonna be, we're going to be faced with this puzzle, right? Is it flu, which causes the same problem, high morbidity mortality in the, in the elderly? Is it RSV, or is it COVID? And it's going to be critical to distinguish those in a nursing home setting, uh, in care facilities, among the elderly in general. So uh, we felt compelled to develop a test that could actually distinguish the three major categories of virus, uh, four different types of virus, flu A, flu B, RSV, and coronavirus, all in one test so that you could make that discrimination very quickly. So, and this is this is where the rubber hits the road for clinical practitioners because the worst thing ever is trying to figure out, okay, if this person, okay, fevers, body aches, all that, if it's flu, it's one treatment. It's one yeah. set of protocols. If that's it's right. COVID, that's a whole different game, including reporting. Yeah. And if it's RSV, that's a whole different game. Yeah. And so having what I would love if I were doing it you know, in the hospital is there's one swab and it's got the panel, like we have respiratory panels, that kind of thing. So is that what you guys are working on? Because if so, I, I, I want that. That is what we're working on. So we've developed a test that will address the syndromic presentation of fever, flu-like symptoms, influenza-like illness, ILI as they call it, uh, that addresses flu A infection, flu B, RSV, and COVID. And they all have very similar clinical presentations of flu-like illness. Yeah. 
Yeah. That, so in a single swab, it's run on one cartridge or how does it work? So it's all run on one swab right. that's collected and um, it then extracts the RNA and it targets uh, multiple segments of the influenza genome for flu A, uh, also flu B, RSV, and coronavirus, and it calls them out individually um, as to which one it is. And what's the turnaround time for that test? Turnaround time will be 36 minutes. That is pretty fast. <clears throat> so you could do it in the clinic at the point of care, patients still waiting there with a mask on, yep. making decisions, or in the hospital. That's great. Yep. So what about shortages of swab materials and bottlenecks and logistics? Are, is that gonna affect this? Yeah, I think we're still swab dependent, right? You really can't get a good um, result for flu, RSV, and coronavirus without a swab. I don't think saliva is gonna be an option for, um, especially for RSV detection. There's some evidence that you can detect flu in saliva, but we're uncertain about whether, whether saliva would work for RSV. I see, and do you think you guys will have this spun up in time for this fall season? We will. That's yeah, great. It will be available for the fall season. It'll be under an emergency use authorization and uh, it will be ready uh, for the upcoming respiratory season. That, that's fantastic. And uh, one of the questions then is, so at that point, would you in the fall, would you just run that panel on anyone with symptoms or would you still have the separate COVID specific swab test? So what we're doing is we are uh, making it possible for you to run the the, the fourplex uh, that we, in, inside the company, we call it Fluvid, right? Or Flurvid, <laughs> if you want to clear the, the RSV part. But uh, the Fluvid test um, actually can be run as a standalone coronavirus test as well. So you can turn off the channels. If, you're, if all you care about is coronavirus, you can turn off the flu and RSV channels and report that out separately. Mm. Um, so it's versatile. It can be used for both a standalone coronavirus testing as well as for uh, the, the four viruses. And what new equipment would clinics and hospitals need to do this then? They don't need any new equipment. They use the system they already have. So uh -huh. it runs on the same box. That's fantastic. Yeah. So this will be good news for people finally yeah. about testing. Yeah. Uh, and then, so, in terms of preparing for this pandemic in the fall, then what would you advise people? Would you say, if you have our system already, prepare to do this test? How, how do you advise people? Typically we'll uh, tell them uh, about the test, give them some information. They can plan on bringing it in, doing a short evaluation of it uh, on site with the system they already have. They may wanna, may wanna add modules to, to um, increase their capacity if they feel they need that. We're not sure what the flu season is going to look like this year. It was pretty mild in Australia this mm. year, probably because of social distancing. Mm. Um, so we're not sure what the pressure is going to be for testing. We do think that a lot of people, um, the worried well with the sniffles, mm. uh, will want to be tested. Uh, that could drive uh, testing volumes, even though they may not satisfy the full criteria of having flu-like symptoms. So it's just hard to gauge how many tests are gonna be run during the upcoming season. But, but you're, if, I imagine you're spinning up for big demand. We are, mm -hmm. and in fact, uh, the idea of making everything in one cartridge uh, makes it easier for us to manufacture the cartridge. We don't have to switch down lines for, to, switch, to switch over to a new product. It makes it more efficient for us to be able to make more cartridges. Uh, 
And since we're um, unable to meet the current demand, making more becomes important. Mm. There are a couple of design features in this test which I think help prepare us for the future. Yeah. Um, One of the big concerns is um, readiness for the current pandemic, but then also readiness for future pandemics. Yeah, tell me about that. So there's been a lot of concern about this new um, avian uh, virus uh, or a um, atypical uh, influenza A virus in China, concern that it might be transmissible. Mm. There's been a lot of concern over the years about pandemic preparedness for avian influenza strains. Yeah, uh, that's been the the biggest concern over the years has been preparing for uh, an H one N one two thousand nine like pandemic, but on a much larger scale. Right. So. Um, what we've done with our with the flu part of the fluvid test is to build in not one, not two, but three independent segments being targeted within influenza A, and we built in a fourth segment to cover avian strains. So the bottom line is that we're able to detect the full range of influenza viruses, including the worst case scenario of a widespread avian strain into that in that assay so that that really does prepare us well for the future possibility of an avian flu outbreak um, it also has for the coronavirus part it has the two targets built in for coronavirus and one of those is uh, a broad range target that can detect the whole family of uh, of coronaviruses uh, that that includes SARS-CoV-2. So it includes everything within the bat SARS coronavirus family. Oh. So it will not miss a case of a yet, you know, a yet a new SARS-CoV-3 virus that were to emerge in the future. So it is it's future proofed in the sense that it's getting us prepared for the next time this happens. Um and I think it's important to consider that this could happen again. The, the, okay, this, if nobody listens to anything else in this interview, this is a key thing. Because I've been telling people, this is a rounding error on a real pandemic. Like mm-hmm. when something yep. highly fatal affects children and adults yep. equally or worse, and is spread airborne, uh, you know, truly like a measles type spread, we are not ready. We're not ready for testing or therapeutics, but this can give us the early signal too, because we're going to be testing already yep. for all uh, for everything else. So if it's part of a panel, this can be a powerful canary in the coal mine. You're seeing SARS-CoV-3 yep. uh, and, 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 or the avian flu, like you said. Now, that's tremendously powerful. So we need to, this is what we need to be thinking of now right. because yeah. this has been a mess. I mean, and one thing I just wanna get your opinion on is the early days of testing when things were kind of falling apart. What, what's your take on all that? What happened there early, early, early? Yeah, uh, I have my own opinions about what happened, <laughs> uh, but I, I think that um, the uh, early response included um, a, um, a good design by the CD, by the CDC for the CDC assay, but then poor implementation. Mm. Um, also, at the same time, limiting that implementation to just the public health labs. Mm. Uh, this is early days. Nobody really knew how far this was going to spread. 
We thought it could be locally contained. So uh, public health felt comfortable that enabling the local public health lab to run the test would be sufficient. But it clearly got out of control. Mm. And there was too long of a delay in allowing uh, the private sector and reference labs in particular to offer their own versions of the same test. So reference labs were required to go through a regulatory approval process, which was poorly defined early on. Mm. So uh, they, they were sitting in limbo. They, they, didn't, they had an assay ready to go, mm. uh, just like in China and, and, and Hong Kong and South Korea. The, the reference labs had assays ready to go, and they were available almost immediately. Uh, we had a regulatory barrier mm. to making them available quickly. Mm. Uh, and so once that was, um, was uh, fixed, uh, reference labs had assays available uh, very quickly. Mm. But by then it was even too late, right? Because the volume, testing volumes, the demand had 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 exceeded what even they were able to handle in the private sector. Uh, the horse the was out of the barn. Level. Yeah. Um, so it, it all came just a little bit too late. You would naturally expect uh, that reference, reference labs would be the first ones to offer a new assay. That's what I did at the Mayo Clinic Laboratory, was have a rapid assay available when something new hit. But the, um, uh, and then for, for uh, kit manufacturers to have something after that, that would further democratize testing, make it more available in local hospital labs. Mm. That's the natural progression, but everything was delayed uh, by by virtue of the um, the framework that we had to deal with uh, early on. Mm. And uh, I think, um, you know, looking back, it would have been uh, better if we had more of a a uh, uh, response like uh, like South South Korea to enable private labs and companies to produce reagents quickly uh, and make them available as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so Dave, then, do you think America ever had a shot at actually Singapore level, New Zealand level containment of this if we'd done everything right in the beginning? Uh, I, 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 don't think we, I, I don't think we would be much better off at this point. I mean, I think the, 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 the seeding of the country, you know, on the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, the fact that it was circulating well in advance of anybody's awareness, the fact that there were silent carriers, uh, asymptomatic carriers already in the population circulating the virus. We didn't have any awareness of this uh, early on. And uh, we had no appreciation for testing asymptomatic people, right, the need for that. So uh, I, I don't think um, it would have been much better. It would have been, um, you know, get, getting results faster and more available would have been useful. But even then, the public health um, measures that would need to be taken on a widespread basis across a, uh, a wide geographic area with multiple seating events happening simultaneously, I just felt, I just feel like, it would have it, it would not have been much different. Yeah, yeah, and that's I even early on I remember looking at what China was doing in yeah. Wuhan and being like, we can't do that here. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, no, I know it's yeah. just yeah, it's not going to happen. No, police lockdown in you know in America, it's just not not going to fly. I mean, look what's happening yeah. now. People, yeah. are, you know, like you and I, are refusing to wear masks. <laughs> yeah. This is actually our this is our first 
in-person interview that I've done since the pandemic started and we're distanced quite a few feet and mm -hmm. have open ventilation and are wearing masks when we're not. But a lot of people just deny that this is still a problem or are yeah. heads in the sand. And the yeah. truth is, you know, I think it, it at this point, we have to do what we can to mitigate harm. And one thing that you guys are doing that is so gonna be so key from everything that I'm getting from this, there's there's actually two things, just to summarize for the audience and for my own thinking. The first is the four test, flu A, flu B, COVID and RSV test. Because when I'm, if, if I'm seeing a patient who has a fever and some body aches in the fall, flu still happens, RSV still happens and it kills people and it's a different treatment. Yeah. So having a rapid test that's, you said 36 minutes turnarounds mm -hmm. um, would actually transform my ability to manage those patients. So that's actually a diagnostic that helps us tremendously, yeah. right? And the second thing is this future pandemic sort of alarm system, which is adding elements to your testing that will pick up sequence homology and other coronaviruses that come from bats yeah. in avian flu viruses that could decimate our population. So that is key that you guys are doing. And um, is there anything that I'm missing that you guys are bringing up right now or that's been talked about recently? No, I think it's uh, that's a great a great summary. Um, uh, I think it is a critical combination of technologies. We need to be uh, even more uh, forward thinking about how we respond in the future. So uh, it's great to develop a broad range um, uh, SARS bat coronavirus part. It's great to develop a broad range flu part. But what about MERS family, we mm. need to accommodate for that. Uh, what if that were to become more widespread, more transmissible? What about um, disease X? What about a Nipah-like virus, which is a measles-like virus that nearly caused a major pandemic a few years ago in India? Oh, wow. Uh, highly transmissible, high mortality rates. Um, what if that were to happen? None of our tests would be ready for that. Mm. So how do we adapt more quickly mm. to the emergence of disease X? How do we enable labs to be set up more quickly to be able to adapt to a, a brand new threat? Mm. Um, part of it's going to be reference labs, for sure. Mm -hmm. What's what reference labs do? These are the bigger, stable labs you send the samples to You send to samples to. Right. But critical to that is going to be enabling decentralized testing for disease X as well. Mm -hmm. And with our global footprint of over 25,000 systems out there in, uh, in almost every country, it makes sense for us to be able to have a response to that as well. Mm. And I think the bottom line in this is science applied to a problem actually works if you do it correctly and yeah. learn from past mistakes. And so now you're trying to move forward into the future with this set that's really, I think, going to be quite helpful, assuming that it's executed well. So I'm going to hold you accountable. You're okay. going to come back in the fall and tell me how things are going then? Okay, I will. I love it. Yeah, I love sure. it. I love it. We're neighbors now in the Bay Area. Absolutely. So yeah. it was fun to just have you be able to pop over and be on the show. It's really exciting because the audience is just desperate for more information on testing and there's so much misinformation and it's just been such a disastrous mess, but I'm glad that we have somebody there who's at least steering a ship in the right direction. So Diamond, Dave, thanks again it for being back on the truly show. truly my pleasure. Thanks Thank again. You. And ZPAC, do me a favor. Um, 
this is an episode you should share with the key points that flu, RSV, COVID are coming this fall and it's going to be difficult if we don't quickly and accurately diagnose them and be aware clinically that these things happen and that we have to get ready for the next pandemic. All right, and then we have to hold our uh, leadership accountable too to provide us with the resources and the tools like this and the logistics to support it, the swab production, all of that, that keep us ready for this kind of thing. Because without that, the best science is gonna fall flat because you can't execute it. So thanks again to Dave Persing from Cepheid and thanks to you guys for sharing the episode and we out, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.